0: And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, for those of you who were anticipating another podcast sooner, my apologies. Things kind of got a little, you know, shaky there for a while. We had a lot going on between Hurricane Irma and other activities in life and a lot of little things that kind of took me away from my things that I wanted to do, Uh, you know, sometimes life gets in the way, and I wanted to have more fun and talk about Disney, but just couldn't find the time to do it, and then along the way, I'll be honest with you, you know, I kind of lost a little bit of, I don't know if passion for it is the right word, but, you know, somewhere along the way, you lose a little steam. I've been doing this for six years now, seven years now, at a regular interval of something like every 10 days, and I had a large supply of uh, pre-recorded podcasts that I was editing up and getting ready to share, and unfortunately, I didn't have any of those left. So, I kind of reached that stumbling point where I'm like, wow, it's not that I want to quit this. It's just that I want to take a little break. So, I did. And uh, I may take a little break, another little break after this one. We'll see. But uh, rest assured, I'm still here. I'll be back. You know, I'm going to continue doing this. I don't intend to stop. It's just sort of a right now trying to work out other things and, you know, get some timing done and make sure that I have good topics to talk about. And I always welcome your suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear about. Today's podcast is going to be sort of a hodgepodge of different things uh, that have happened over the last uh, month or so that are worth talking about. So starting off, I'm gonna talk about Hurricane Irma. So Irma was blaring up the coast, very large storm, one of the largest and most intense storms ever recorded. You know, a little daunting to those of us who live in Florida because it was actually bigger than the state of Florida, which is a very scary thing. And you look at it and you go, wow, that's gonna be a you know, pretty bad thing. And it turned out for those of us in South Florida, it wasn't so bad. And uh, the storm made its way across the central part of the state, so it went through the Disney parks. And uh, the main thing you saw was a lot of downed trees. And kudos to Disney this time for being a little bit more prepared for the storm than they were last year for Hurricane Matthew. So in this case, they were actually so well prepared that they were able to staff up their kitchens in all of the resort hotels. They told people that they had to stay in the hotels, and they closed the theme parks again for two days, which, again, it's becoming more of a regular thing rather than an irregular thing. And they had people stay and just uh, just stay in their hotels, but they pr- were prepared for it. They had food service available. They had characters coming in and entertaining people. They offered Disney movies for everyone. And I have to give them a lot of credit for making it more entertaining than the last time where it felt like they were so unprepared and so ill-prepared for the storm. So, again, kudos to them for actually figuring it out and doing something better so that the guest experience was a better experience than last year when uh, hurricane matthew came through and they just kind of locked people in the rooms and sold them, you know, cold ham and cheese sandwiches for 12 bucks. At least here they had most food service available in the in the resort hotels and they tried to create activities that made it compelling and fun. So, way to go. You know, way to improve the uh, guest experience. Now, you know, they had to cancel some things and shuffle some things around. So there was a little uh, angst among people. And I know some people canceled their trips and whatever. And Disney was pretty accommodating. And I have to give them credit for that too. They, they worked it out well that they were ready for people and what they might uh, have and, and need uh, in terms of the storm. And I think people were a little more ready for it uh, as well. You know, I think guests were a little more prepared kind of knowing what was coming. And I think Disney did a good, did a good job of keeping everyone in the loop. Now, one of the uh, interesting things I heard about Before the Storm was this story about uh, Kristen Bell and Josh Gad. And I don't know if you know this story, but this is is pretty good, actually. So Josh Gad played uh, Olaf in the Frozen movie, uh, and Kristen Bell was the voice of Anna. So the story goes that Josh Gad's family was actually down in South Florida. And uh, he's from South Florida originally, and they were visiting friends and relatives and whatever. It was his uh, parents and I think a sibling, and they were down there, and Kristen Bell was in Orlando doing some work. And uh, she heard about Josh Gad's family being down there, and she arranged for them to come from Fort Lauderdale up to Orlando to stay in a hotel so that they'd be safer because the storm looked like it was going to make landfall on the East Coast at some period of time. So she helped them get up there and uh, be safe. Now, unfortunately, the storm took a different track than it originally looked like it was going to take. And they actually were trapped in the hotel there in Orlando, but they were safe and everybody was fine. But the back and forth between Gad and Belle was very sweet. It was actually a very nice thing. And she did it for other families, too. She had some other families that she helped as well. And I, you know, I got to give her some credit for that, uh, for doing the right thing and helping people out, you know, who she thought needed some help. And that uh, was really nice. And they had a very, like I said, a sweet back and forth. Um, and it was public on Twitter. They were talking about it. And uh, Olaf was uh, appreciating what Anna did for him. And I just thought that was really nice. And it was, you know, kind of got that interesting, fun Disney connection to it that just makes it that much better. So in the end, Disney suffered very little damage other than some downed trees that they were able to take out pretty quickly as soon as uh, the, the storm had passed. So good for them. Uh, you know, they were back up and running. I think the storm came through on uh, Sunday and they were back up and running by Tuesday, I believe it was. So you know, pretty good work. Uh, I think everyone, um, everyone was in pretty good shape there. Uh, you know, well, well thought out. And most guests took it in stride. You know They understood what was going on. And I think Disney did, did a good job of taking care of them for the most part. So it was a funny thing that happened recently. Disney uh, put up some new signage, as they often do, where they were pointing to different directions to help guests along the roads to get to their various destinations on Walt Disney World's property. And on a couple of signs, they misspelled the word Epcot. And it did not go unnoticed by guests who were traveling along. They spelled it E-P-O-C-T instead of E-P-C-O-T. So it was a Epoch. What is that? The Experimental Prototype of Community Tomorrow? Something like that. Anyway, it was kind of funny and the signs went up and it it got picked up on, uh, got a little press on social media, made its way around that made the news cycle too. It was kind of funny that, you know, it kind of made its way around and everyone saw it. Kind of a little blunder by Disney. It's kind of unusual. You know, who was checking these signs anyway that it would go up like that? And speaking of Epcot, there was something kind of funny that happened. Uh, Alex Morgan, the uh, U.S. women's national team star, she's probably the most recognizable face, perhaps beyond Hope Solo. She was at uh, Epcot's Food and Wine Festival with a couple of other friends uh, and some other people. I think her husband was there, and there were some other friends who who play on the Orlando uh, FC soccer team, and uh, they were there enjoying the Food and Wine Festival. Well, apparently, they all started drinking, and you know, people get a little rowdy. uh, They were actually at the uh, UK pub. They were at the uh, UK pavilion and went into the pub there and were trying to get a drink. And one of the players cut in front of some other people and tried to place his order. And the person, the other patron of the bar, the other guest, actually said, excuse me, I think I was next. And he goes, you know, he just got a little belligerent with the person. And then Alex Morgan stepped in. She goes, hey, what's your problem? And she tried to get in to get a drink too. And that's the way the story plays out anyway. And so it got a little, you know, Testy, and they got they both they all started raising their voices, and then Alex, who appeared to be intoxicated, started saying some silly things like, "I know the SWAT team over Orlando. What what's the problem here?" And the the uh, sheriff's deputies were called, and she and all the players were all escorted out of the park by the sheriff's deputies and uh, asked to leave. the The official report they filed says she was highly impaired, uh, and uh, so clearly she must have been she must have been intoxicated. Food and Wine Festival will do that to people. It was a kind of a hot day she was there. But it was kind of amusing. No one got hurt, but uh, she's been kicked out of the park. So Alex Morgan can add that to her list of accomplishments off the field. So turning to other news, Disney has announced that they're going to start jumping on the meal planning kit. And the way they're going to do this is that some of the Disney Vacation Club properties, where you're staying for a length of time and you have it, the facilities to be able to cook for yourself, they're offering... Uh, the ability to order a meal that's in a kit that you can prepare yourself in the in the property. They're starting with the uh, Saratoga Springs Resort and Spa uh, and going planning on expanding it out to other resorts depending on the success. So the idea would be to prepare to have a ready-to-make dinner available for forty-nine dollars that would feed a family of four. The first dish they're trying is a rigatoni. Fia Solana, it's a rigatoni with a creamy tomato sauce, sausage, portobello mushrooms, parmesan, and fresh basil. And of course, it comes with baking instructions and how to make it. I think this is an intriguing idea for people who are staying longer, who want to be able to better afford and manage their finances. If you're not going I don't think that Disney is going to continue to offer free dining as an option uh, in the long run. And certainly for the vacation club owners, that's not really an option anyway. So what other options could you give people? Well, if you're going to be staying in a property that has a kitchenette and has the ability to cook, why not give you the ability to cook for yourself for a day and learn something about cooking and have a little fun, have a little family experience while you're there. So I, I find this intriguing, and I think this is an interesting opportunity, and I suspect that Disney could expand this line beyond their theme parks if they really wanted to because all these different companies, the Blue Apron, the Fresh Express, all uh, HelloFresh, uh, Terra's Kitchen, all these different companies that do national sort of deliveries. It's a space that Disney could potentially get into or at least do it at the theme park, at their resort hotels and the theme parks that have the kitchenettes. And I think you could provide a service to people for, you know, for a price point of $49 that includes the pasta, salad, breadsticks, whatever. It gives you an opportunity to make it somewhat affordable for a family of four. I mean, you think $49, you could easily spend that for one person dining out. So, interesting concept. Right now, it's available at only at the Artist Palette uh, there at the Saratoga Springs Resort. So, if you're interested in checking it out, if you're staying at the Saratoga Springs Resort, you can go with, go ahead and check it out if you want to. There's another rumor floating around that Disney is considering creating a paid FastPass Plus. So, essentially, you could buy more exposure and access to FastPasses by purchasing them. So essentially, it would be an upcharge for being able to get more experiences. Okay, conceptually, I get where they're going. It kind of annoys me a little bit, but I expected this to be coming. I've been saying for a while, they've been trying to level the playing field and maybe tip it more to people who spend more, especially those people who stay at a vacation club property, rather than people who are seasoned veterans and know how to navigate the park. So the objective was to make sure that the people who are paying more get more. So I could imagine that it might be an upcharge for the average guest, but for maybe people who stay in the vacation club or stay in a luxury resort, it may be an additional perk that they had that they add on in order to get people to stay there. You know, it may be one of these things where they offer it, they offer it uh, for free or as an included part of your package, so that instead of getting the three FastPass pluses per day, maybe you get five, and you can select from different categories rather than always from the, the main categories or the tiered structure that they have today. Conceptually, I think it's genius on Disney's part, though I'm a little concerned that it kind of changes the way we look at the parks a little bit and creates sort of this disparity in some ways, right? You look at it and you go, well, maybe things are going to change just a little bit and continue to you know really tip the balance toward the people who are the, the higher-priced people, you know, the people who pay more. And I know that they've been doing some things where they have um, – different tours, VIP tours that they do kind of behind the scenes and after hours where they let you go on some attractions for a set price. So clearly this is going to continue. And no matter what, that's going to continue. So I think that you're just going to see an expansion into different things. So if the park closes at say seven o'clock, the park would be open for other people at a much higher price point later in the, later in the evening for smaller crowds it's sort of taking the idea of Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party and Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party and moving that into something that's a more rich experience that's got a higher price point to it. Good, bad, or indifferent? Mm, I don't know, but I I can see the difference there. So also, I saw an interesting article in Gizmodo, and I wanted to share this one with you. Uh, It's actually from um, a while ago. Uh, It's from a couple of months ago, but the article is called how I Let Disney Track My Every Move, and it's by Adam Clark Estes. I'll put a link to it in my show notes page. What he says is, on a recent trip to Disney World, I had an unusual experience. I rode a ride. It broke. We were evacuated. And a few minutes later, I got a picture on my phone. It was an, of an empty raft sliding down Splash Mountain, taken it precisely the moment I was walking down the emergency stairwell. It was weird. Technology has changed the Disney experience, and not necessarily in a bad way. These days, you can get something called Magic Band, a radio-powered bracelet that will open your hotel room door at the Disney resorts, let you into the parks, let you get onto the rides more quickly, and even pay for your breakfast at Gaston's Tavern. It's also communicating with beacons hidden throughout the park to let Disney know what you're doing and where you're going. Disney first introduced the technology in 2013 and recently updated it, but I just encountered the band firsthand on my vacation, so I still can't stop thinking about it. The very notion of wearing a tracking bracelet freaks me out. It's weird enough that you have to supply your fingerprint at the front gate of Disney World, as well as other theme parks these days. I realize that this is something I signed up for. Disney will still let you use paper tickets and avoid magic bands if you like. But I arrived at the park pretty clueless about the extent to which Disney would be tracking my every move. It's kind of like signing up for Facebook with the hope that you can connect with far-off friends, only to realize several years later that Social Network has been gobbling up your online activity in order to sell ads. You agreed to this deal. Nevertheless you probably didn't comprehend every detail buried in the fine print. Plenty of retail outlets already track shoppers using beacons with radio signals that communicate with shoppers' smartphones via apps with permissions from location services. Google Maps, meanwhile, identifies your location basically every time you use the service. Amusement parks and cruise ships are increasingly incorporating connected wearables in order to streamline the fun and keep track of the of their guests' activities. That's not to say that the constant surveillance is fun. It's a tortured reality that we all struggle to comprehend in in the real world. Inside the walled garden of a theme park, however, it's something we elect to do. When I got home from my brief stay at the most magical place on Earth, I contacted Disney, as well as a notorious hacker, to find out how exactly the park keeps track of its guests. Curious about how the Magic Band works, I I did what any responsible nerd would do and cut it apart with an X-Acto knife. The guts of the cuffs are relatively simple, using a simple RFID technology. The silicone wrap bracelet, uh, the silicone wrapper bracelets, they almost look like chunkier Fitbits, send out radio signals. Inside, there are two antennas, one for short-range radio and one for long-range. The short-range antenna is the one in action when you tap the magic band to a touch point. After the touch, the band gives you a light show. LEDs swirl around the Mickey logo and it turns green. The long-range antenna is, for lack of a more specific term, the always-on antenna. It's sending signals out to beacons so that Disney can collect, somehow anonymized, data about its park guests. I don't remember signing a document that explained the Magic Band's far-reaching surveillance, specifically the long-range beacons tracking my every move. There is some legalese in the park's terms and conditions, and and an obscure corner of Disney's FAQ about the technology that mentions that the bands provide information that helps us improve the overall experience in our parks. The idea makes great business sense. The company actively recruits mathematicians to examine patterns related to everything from food consumption to the schedule of costume characters roaming the parks. If Disney knows where the guests are, Disney could ostensibly devote more resources to the spots where they flock. But it's a bit unnerving that Disney wouldn't tell me where the long-range band-sensing beacons are located in the park. But I know there's at least a few inside Splash Mountain. To ensure that photos are appropriately linked to the correct guest accounts, there are a few points within the attraction where they read the magic band. The Disney spokesman explained to me, In this instance, your magic band was read by the system after you boarded the ride, and although you were evacuated, a photo was still taken and and matched to your account. That's creepy, but quite frankly, magic bands are convenient as hell. You can schedule times to use your FastPass ride picks weeks ahead of visiting the parks, and then just show up and tap the bracelet on the touch point at the ride to skip the line. You can buy stuff—Mickey Mouse dolls with a Magic Band tap and a pin code. You can get your picture taken in front of Cinderella Castle and then tap your magical bracelet to send the photos to your My Magic Plus app. Sure, you don't have to download Disney's smartphone app if you're willing to explore the park in an old-fashioned way. Since Disney launched the technology in 2013, though, Magic Bands have become ubiquitous for about half of Disney's guests. Those who stay in the Disney hotels get Magic Bands when they check in. Frankly, I thought the Magic Band was the only way to get around the park before I did more research. Disney updated the band late last year with the release of the Magic Band 2. A new design enabled guests to remove a screw and take out a circuitry-filled medallion that could be attached to a keychain. I've, I've even read that Disney considered installing them into those Mickey Ear Hats, which is equal parts unnerving and hilarious. Would I want to buy my kids souvenirs with tracking chips installed? Would anyone want that? Maybe some parents would want that. I did see a few kids on leashes at the park. The Magic Band was originally built with privacy in mind, Senior Vice President Jim McFeed told me about the device, d- designed to track your every move, after I explained my Splash Mountain surprise. There's not a connection to you as an individual. I have a hard time with this PR-friendly answer. Built with privacy in mind almost sounds like the punchline of a, of a post-Snowden era joke. Operating in a connected world where everything can be hacked, vague claims of privacy are hardly reassuring without some substantive details. Disney's executives couldn't give me a source... They could speak on the more technical aspects of the magic band or give me more information about how exactly they're protecting parkgoers' privacy or what tech Disney uses to anonymize its visitors' personal information over the airwaves. I still don't know exactly how and where Disney World tracked me and the millions of other guests who visited the park every year. I do know that the magic bands can be hacked, however. Since Disney wouldn't tell me much about how the bands work, I went to hackers who would. As far as I know, magic band hacking hasn't happened on a destructive scale. When the magic Band first started shipping to Disney visitors, however, one homebrew hacker named Luke Burnt used a Raspberry Pi and some code to hijack the magic band so they could perform a whole host of tasks. Thanks to another hacker who dug up Disney's FCC filings for the Magic Band technology, Burnt did all kinds of fun things, like getting one of the bracelets to turn lights on inside his home. He also said the hack could enable the magic band to work with smart locks or send commands to Internet services. The band has two radios, and one of them is standard RFID. Burnt said in a blog post highlighting the short range antenna. This makes things quite a bit easier. The second, long range radio, is actually the more interesting one of the tinkering point of view, from a tinkering point of view. When Burnt was able to hack the short range radio and create his own magic band functions like turning on lights, the long range antenna is much more powerful. Documentation on the FCC website reveals that the magic band's long range antenna sends a 2.4 gigahertz signal, not unlike your wireless keyboard or mouse. This could enable the device to communicate with receivers up to 100 feet away. According to security researcher and hacker Sammy Kemkar, the technology could be used to do much more. The chip that they use is technically not Bluetooth low energy, but it is on the same energy modulation, Kemkar told me. It's capable of of detecting some Bluetooth signals. It can technically know if you have a Fitbit on you. Whether they're doing that or not, I have no idea. That capability would apply to any Bluetooth-enabled device, Kemkar said. Like a smartphone or an Apple Watch. Again, Disney says that it encrypts and anonymizes all data collected through the uh, Magic Band system, so you shouldn't necessarily worry about getting spied on at the parks. The long range antennas could technically track you when you're not in the parks, however, not that you have much of a reason to be wearing it outside the park right now. Because they're remote, it also means that they could have sensors outside of Disney. There could be sensors in stores that correlate to the fact that because you're wearing the band when you visit this store, said ChemCar. If I were designing this device, that would, that would probably be the next thing I would do. Now that I at least comprehend the scope of the Magic Band's technology, I actually feel more comfortable in using it. After all, it was the not knowing that creeped me out to begin with. Next time I visit a Disney park, I'll still be wearing my Magic Band, fully realizing that it's sending out signals with every step I take. Still, I wouldn't say I'm completely at ease. Disney's vague answers, my Magic Band dissection, and Camcar's comments managed to demystify some of the band's functions to me, but I'm still feeling torn. What am I giving up in exchange for the convenience of tapping my special bracelet on a light-up Mickey logo to gain access to fun rides and experiences? Is it something more than the intel that I bought three hot dogs for lunch or how I spent five minutes posing for pictures with a costume mouse? Disney World is supposed to be a fantasy land where everything is effortless and the outside world doesn't matter. Disney wants you to think that these all-access magic bands work like magic when they really the system is just a bunch of wires, antennas, databases, and algorithms. Connected devices like these are the future, a future that requires people to sacrifice privacy for convenience. I think about this trade-off constantly. Every time I scroll through Facebook, use Gmail, or offer up my location on Apple Maps, we're already elect to live under a certain degree of constant surveillance. These days... Almost anything you do online and off involves business collecting, businesses collecting personal data and leveraging it to boost profits. Disney is no different. If you're lucky, that data collection might also lead to a better, more personalized experience. If you're being realistic, you agree to be watched in order to enjoy that luxury. Disney World isn't exactly as special in this sense. It's the most magical surveillance state on earth, though. I thought that was a pretty good article, and I wanted to share that with you. Now, finally today i wanted to leave you with one other thing that kind of amused me and this was this is an old story that uh, that goes back quite a ways and the story is how yogi berra turned real estate swindling into disney world payout and this is from newjersey.com from september by uh, ed lucas i love sitting with yogi berra in the yankee stadium dining room listening rapidly as he told many humorous and often unbelievable tales One of my favorites concerned the time in the mid 1950s when he and over 20 of his Yankee teammates, including Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, and Phil Rizzuto, were approached by a persistent and somewhat suspect real estate developer offering to sell them cheap land in central Florida for just $30 an acre. All of them bought several plots. Unfortunately, the land they purchased was deemed too swampy to build. They got swindled. In 1964, A mysterious investor named M.T. Lott came calling, offering the players 150 an acre for their useless and unwanted property. They all sold without hesitation, all except Yogi. Barra held out. He believed that something could be built there someday, or that another offer would come along. His friends thought he was crazy. Yogi's instincts for real estate, however, turned out to be just as sharp as in baseball. In 1965, the identity of their mystery buyer was revealed— Walt Disney was quietly snapping up land for his next project, a Disney World, to be built in central Florida. Walt silently acquired over 27,000 swampy acres for next to nothing. But to complete his plan, stubborn holdout owners like Bera had to be wooed. According to Yogi, they finally settled on a price of $300,000 per acre. It ain't over till it's over, indeed. The tracks Yogi sold are now part of Epcot Center, which opened 35 years ago. Walt's dream for his Central Florida property was much different than what would actually be built. Disney wasn't thinking of just another theme park. He envisioned the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, Epcot, a model utopia of urban planning and scientific development. After Walt died suddenly in 1966, Epcot's plans were modified. It it debuted, of course, on October 1, 1982 as a theme park and, and permanent World's Fair. Walt also considered bringing a professional baseball team to the Sunshine State as part of Epcot, a notion ahead of its time. Pro sports were unthinkable in the tropical climate of then sparsely populated Florida. The NFL's Dolphins and Buccaneers hadn't been established, and baseball was mostly about spring training. Disney believed it could work, as Jeff Barnes, author of the new book, Beyond the Wisdom of Walt, Life Lessons from the Most Magical Place on Earth, observed, Walt predicted the growth of American family and disposable income. He knew that Americans liked leisure and playtime and anticipated the modern entertainment industry, which includes sports. A visit to the Houston Astrodome in 1965 convinced Disney that a dome could work in Florida where extreme heat and unpredictable weather are the norm. Epcot would have been completely covered by a climate-controlled top. In addition to the sports facilities at Epcot, there were going to be high-rise apartments, industrial areas, theaters, research labs, energy-efficient vehicles, and public parking spaces, all nestled under a cool dome. The whole thing would have been funded by the profits from the Magic Kingdom theme park and resorts, which would have taken up only a fraction of Walt's Florida property. This wasn't Disney's first attempt to bring sports and entertainment to the masses. In the early 1960s, Walt was working with the St. Louis Cardinals, among others, on an indoor recreation and amusement facility on the Mississippi River, which would have been linked with their brand new stadium. The New Jersey Meadowlands was also considered, then rejected, as a possibility for Disney's first East Coast indoor sports facility and theme park. In California, Walt was building a Disney ski resort in the Sierras called Mineral Springs, but that project was abandoned after his death. As Jeff Barnes notes, America's national pastime was a big favorite of Walt's, and he definitely had an influence on it. Mr. Disney enjoyed spending time, often alone, at baseball games in Los Angeles, mostly minor league games as the Dodgers did not arrive until 1958. Eventually, Los Angeles would have ended up with a second major league team. There's no way, however, that this team calls Anaheim home without Disneyland. When Walt's Park opened in 1955, Anaheim was home to 14,000 residents. The population expanded rapidly. The Angels were born in 1962, and Anaheim became immediately became a major league city thanks to Disney. Without the development of Walt Disney World, one wonders if Florida's population ever grows large enough to support one, let alone two current major league baseball franchises. Though Walt's 1960 plans for a major league team playing a regular season games in Epcot never came to fruition, Disney did build the wide world of sports complex in their property in 1997, which became the spring training home of the Atlanta Braves. A lot has changed, both in baseball and that central Florida swamp since 1966. It will continue to change, hopefully for the better. Fans of both will also, hopefully, continue to follow these changes and embrace them. It's kind of a fun story, right? Something about Yogi Berra getting involved in the Walt Disney project. How funny is that? You know, small world indeed. And if the next time you go to Epcot think about Yogi Berra. It's like deja vu all over again. Well, that's my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then... Gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on disneyworldpodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading.